Welcome everyone to Next Gen Talks, The Future of Policing, a video podcast series hosted by the National Gen Z and Millennial Community. Our conversation today is called For Us, By Us, Reforming Police Policies with Community Voices. In this conversation, we will explore several policy changes that the community is calling for in order to reimagine how policing is done in America. We'll cover topics including qualified immunity, development of national registries, what it takes to enact large-scale police reform, and a breakdown of how policy changes actually happen within cities. My name is Anne Pearson. I'm your conversation host. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm currently a student at Bellman University. I'm joined together today by three wonderful guests. First, Ms. Netta Elzey, co-founder of Campaign Zero, a national police reform campaign. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Mr. Michael Davis, currently the police chief of Northeastern University in Boston and former police chief of the city of Brooklyn Park in Minnesota. Thank you. Great to be here, thank you. And then finally, we have Mr. Arif Ali Khan, expert on policing, homeland security and counterterrorism, a former federal prosecutor and director of constitutional policing at the Los Angeles Police Department. Hi, thank you, Anne. Um, and just so you know, it's RF, not Arif. RF, I apologize so That's much. Okay. <laughs> um, each of our guests today have played a role in building community-based solutions for police reform across the country. Personally, as a student and a grassroots activist, I know that I have a lot to learn from our discussion today. But I'd like to start at a very different level, looking at federal reform specifically. In the past few days, the House of Representatives has passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which is designed to ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants in some cases, and to shift funding to community-based programs. Mr. Alakan, if you don't mind, with your background in federal policing, do you think that such a bill could be effective in creating change across the country, and where might it fall short? Well, I think, I think it's certainly a good start. I mean, there are many things and elements in the bill that are very important that we have some consistency, national registries, some consistency on the banning of chokeholds, and other things like that, uh, limiting the military equipment for appropriate circumstances, I think are all very important. I think though, it's only a start and I'm not sure it's necessarily gonna lead to the key issues that we need in systemic reform in policing. It's important to remember, we have 18,000 different police agencies in the United States. It's a very uh, diffused and, and, and sort of very different uh, dispersed throughout the country. And that's very different from any other countries um, it's part of our history. We don't believe in concentrated police power in any one agency, whether at the federal government or at the local government. But it also creates a lot of issues in terms of the differences between agencies and their capabilities, their accountability systems, their training, and even the quality of the officers that each agency can attract and maintain. So while I think that the, the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is a good start, um, I think we still need to focus on some of the key aspects of policing in every state and every jurisdiction, which are really some structural issues that we can get into later. Um, but certainly it, it's an important thing. And, and, and we're having serious discussions now in this country about policing and the disparate impact it can have and really trying to figure out what as a society do we want police officers to be focused on and doing. It's certainly always nice to hear that something's a good start. We just cannot allow it to stop there. 
I was wondering, Mr. Davis, um, especially with your background in leading a police department, which managed to reduce crime to a 20-year low under your leadership, um, what the pros and cons of having that kind of federal regulation is in your eyes? Well, I think there's advantages to having a certain mean being set for you know, levels of authority and, and really defining what effective policing is. I mean, there's been attempts at this, right, through the COPS office, through the Department of Justice and NIJ and other kind of incentivize these kind of innovative programming pieces, right? But I think there's something more fundamental here, right? Is, is the, you know, the effort as I see it in policing is to really humanize the approach and get people to really think about what are the ideal outcomes of, uh, you know, the police community interaction, you know, the whole proposition of policing, what should it be producing, right? And I think that's where you start. And the reason that's important is if, if the goal is simply to administer police services, you know, the kind of perfunctory act of simply responding to 911 calls, um, there's no, what's the essence of the work? So what's the value and what we're trying to accomplish in really dealing with the conditions that contribute to crime and disorder, right? Are we simply a service agency or are we an agency that's meant to do things that are deeper? And I think the value of policing, both for the police officer and certainly for the community, is this recentering of the purpose of police. And, and I believe it's to deal with those conditions and challenge those conditions um, that make communities less safe. But you do this by really appreciative inquiry, focusing on those elements of community that need to be engendered, right? And, and, I'll, and on a first set of comments with this is that, you know, I believe that there's a core philosophy that needs to be embedded, inculcated in every single organization, is that every human being has equal intrinsic value. And what do I mean by that? It's not just us as human beings. It really is also in the potential of every human being to contribute to be part of society. So we need to see that every every everyone who loses, you know, any in any jurisdiction by which is a loss of life, there's a homicide or um, an act of police violence, say that dehumanizes folks. That there's a loss of potential. There's, there, there certainly is a violation of rights. Um, and that costs society in a number of ways. And, and I think that re really truly re-inculcating this notion of humanity back in policing is what you know every bit of legislation should look to accomplish. And through that, I think you create a mean by which um, can change policing, um, as was stated earlier, across all 18,000 police departments that need it. A quick follow-up to that. Do you think that that kind of reorientation towards the end goal of really valuing people's lives and intrinsic value, is that something that needs to change on just on the police side or on the public side or on both? Well, I think, I think in society we're, we're stratified. I think, there's, I think there's a value hierarchy that exists in society based upon status, based upon a number of different criteria. That's pernicious to, to a society that's looking to do what's best for everyone. We have to, we have to, to me, we have to realize that societies function best when everyone um, contributes what they can to society. So what does that mean? That means that everyone is given the opportunity to do that. That means I see value in what every single individual has to offer that needs to be cultivated. So if police engage community with that, with that philosophical premise and, and it become the model of that, then that's how you build collective efficacy in communities, say, and how you build that support in communities. And so the police should model that behavior um, and engender that in community, because that's essentially what makes, in my mind, communities thrive. 
Um, Ms. Elsie, coming to you, you specifically said that change comes from the bottom up, not from the top down, um, which makes perfect sense as a grassroots activist. I've seen the most change happen on the ground as we're moving. Um, but do you believe that nationwide change is possible, that we can actually achieve goals with those kind of more major legislation? Um, I think nationwide change is possible if there's actual nationwide oversight, if there is nationwide enforcement of said change, of said laws. I don't think it means anything if um, no one is holding anyone accountable on any level in any of these 18,000 police departments that we're talking about. And that kind of national level of oversight, is that kind of a hierarchical thing where people at the top have kind of people keeping them accountable and vice versa down through every single level of the police department? Or is it within police departments completely separately from each other? Um, I think that this should be an independent effort. Um, I actually don't see a world where the police are holding each other accountable. Um, or anyone inside of the police department is holding other people inside of police departments accountable in a safe way without um, being threatened or um, fired or harassed. Uh, I did read something over the summer about an officer in New York, I actually think, um, who wanted to make a complaint, but, you know, his name was released and it like went really wild. I've, I've talked about this on our podcast, actually. Um There is, unless there is no way for people to actually have a real interest in holding each other accountable from the inside, I just don't see that as a real effort that is um, worth putting any real attention to um, for myself. And that makes sense. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, please, I, I just, I wanted to follow on with what uh, Janetta is saying, because I think it's an important point. Um You know, whether it comes from the top down or the bottom up, I think it has to come from both. But I do think just from a practical perspective, when you look at the way policing is conducted in the United States, as is all other government functions, whether it's fire service, education, um, even how we regulate lawyers and doctors and engineers, it's not at the federal level. It's going to be at the state level, and then it goes down into the agency level. I think the fundamental flaw that we're encountering is even in, especially in a large state like where I am in California, um, there are no real state standards for the 500 departments we have here. And 500 is actually lower than many states that are smaller than California. And so we have this expectation that each and every agency is going to have its own accountability systems, its own policies and procedures, its own standards. And that's why it's so easy for a very small department to have an incident, but of course affects all of the departments, even though they may not be at that same level of accountability. But I think fundamentally from the ground up is not just with the community grassroots, but it's actually with the agencies until we get some at the right spot to have some standardization. And I've been testifying quite a bit to different uh, legislative committees, et cetera. And the fundamental thing I, I've talked about is that there are a lot of legislative efforts because politicians and you know political leadership want to react. They wanna say they're doing something. But if you look at fundamentally what we've experienced with policing for a, a century, it comes down to three issues. One, the excessive use of force. Two, racial bias. And three, the lack of accountability. 
And you can go back through every single commission, every single task force report, and those three issues come up over and over. And what happens is we're in this sort of endless loop where there's some marginal improvements because there have been improvements. It's not We're not in the same situation, but we're fundamentally not changing the things about police. Who become police officers? How are we developing them? And do we still need a structure of a police agency that is so antiquated where everybody's expected to come in and stay for 30 years um, with no off ramps if it's not the work for them and very and making it very difficult to screen out people um, once they've taken on a very difficult job and it may not be for them. That's certainly an interesting perspective. Um, as a student, we especially in the criminal justice department, we do talk a lot about um, the kind of fraternity that exists within a police department. And I think police staying within a department for a long period of time builds that because you don't have new faces, new ideas coming and leaving. It's the same people who are enforcing the same rules and it just kind of perpetuates itself. Well, and, and just on that point, because that's a very good point, but also look at how we recruit police officers or what, what the, the influx is. So basically, you know, we have, we had, we, the policing today, especially, and I'm sure Chief Davis can talk about this, you know, intimately with his own experience. It is very difficult. You have to deal with complex social issues. You're making split second and longer term decisions. You're dealing with a million things that are going on just from the response of a radio call. And we take the youngest, least experienced and least ready people, put them in a six month academy where there is no educational requirements to even have any understanding of the criminal justice system and expect them on day one to you know, be able to exercise the judgment and apply critical thinking skills and problem solving skills without actually making sure that they have those capabilities going into the job. And I believe policing is a profession. It, it is a professional and noble calling and there are many departments that have emphasized professionalism is one of the keys to addressing many of these issues. But I, it, but the problem is we, it isn't actually treated as a profession from a legal point of view, from a societal point of view or anything else, because there is no profession in the United States, a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, anybody who has to exercise discretion of consequence where there are no college education requirements where there's no requirements that they develop critical thinking and decision-making skills. Police academies have become much better, but they are very good at teaching technical skills, but not as good as teaching more, you know, broader skills about history and, and analysis and critical thinking and actually exercising judgment. Because at the end of the day, the most important, in my opinion, the most important quality of an officer in addition to their ethics and integrity, which should be not even a question, is their ability to make decisions um, all on an everyday basis, and especially decisions that can have great consequences. And I don't think structurally we have prepared, we are adjusting to the actual needs of policing by making sure that the people coming in are the people who can do that job and have to do it for a long time. The emphasis has largely been screening people out. And most of the recruitment um, and the screening, especially in large agencies, is all about screening people out. We're not screening people in and, and making sure that those who are in are developing and have the incentives to model better behavior as that group becomes tighter and tighter over the years. 
Mr. Davis, you were nodding at one point. Would you like to expand on that? Well, I mean, there, there are points by which I emphatically agree, and, uh, agree it, but there's one point by which I would, I would say um, is missed here. So individuals that come into a police organization, right? And let's just say you have uh, an individual has you know, tremendous life experience, um, you know, has the right disposition, right? Is a good fit for the community, checks all the boxes, right? And if you're going to say screen someone in, it fit that. The culture within the, the organization, if it's pernicious and set on the wrong philosophical premise and incentivizes the wrong behavior, will beat that out of them. Right. So they get five years in, they remember nothing about the noble reason by which they accepted to do the job. They're trying to survive in the vortex of culture that exists, especially in large police organizations. And I think, Anne, you alluded to this notion or someone had earlier about, you know, people staying 30 years within a police organization. I agree. No one should spend 30 years in one organization. Right. I spent 16 years in my first organization and I'm glad I joined. And the next best thing I did was leave. Right. And I look back favorably in that time. But the two consecutive organizations I, after that, I was a part of one informs the other. Right. So I think that there, there is a there's a going back to my previous comment. There is an internal framing. There's dogma that is that is colored. What is police effectiveness that that people within organizations have grown up with? It's been incentivized and then they replicate through their own leadership. So this is really a fundamental change time, right? This is not about activity. It's about outcomes. And in my mind, if we focus on outcomes instead of activity, you can't behave the same. You can't leverage this, the discretion the way in which you leverage it. If my job is to lift people up, and it may sound aspirational, but if I believe that everyone is equal intrinsic value, that my job is to place anyone that I find in a better position to contribute to society and to follow things through, and I have an organization now that's now conditioned to help me do that, then my experiences are going to be completely different. Let me give an example of what I mean by changing the framing of the work. So in large organizations, right, cops on the street are report takers. Once they take that report, they never see those people again, unless they come back to the same house by happenstance, right? In small organizations that are a bit more personal, that same officer may be the one doing the investigation and the follow-up. And the follow-up after the follow-up. Now I'm building a relationship. Now I'm invested in outcomes. So in the neighborhoods by which we need that kind of mentality the most, departments are conditioned to, to compartmentalize the distribution of service, the administration of service, so that you're never building a relationship. You're going call to call to call to call to call. And, and the point is to handle the call, not deal with the humanity that's, that, we're, that, we're, that we're confronted with here and look for the opportunity to make the situation better and see it through. Stay on this call as long as it takes. We've lost more lives because cops are in a hurry to resolve the situation, right, than, than in any other set of circumstances. Take your time, figure out what's going on. And that kind of mentality will snowball into eventually changing the conditions that exist in the community for the better. I mean, so this is a fundamental shift that needs to happen. So I agree. Initially, we got to think about oversight. And I've been a part of two consent decrees. I've been, you know, part of the investigative team going in. And that is the oversight function right now at a federal level. The problem is it's a very low bar. Are you violating the civil rights ordinance or you're not? It's nothing to do with how effective you are. And what I'm talking about is effective policing. And those have results, right, that are measurable. What are you creating? What are you a part of? 
What are your officers producing individually? And let me just say this. Back to my first part of my, my, my comment here was about what a culture of an organization does to a police officer that aspires to do good work. Now think of that in the ideal. Now you come into an organization by which we only recruit people that have that aspire to do good work. Because we're not we're not gonna we're not going to celebrate right the tactical dimensions of the work. You're not gonna see SWAT team videos and that kind of thing. You're gonna see people investing themselves in the humanity of the function. So now you're recruiting a different type of people. Now we're going to incentivize that. So the only thing we celebrate is not arrests. We're not going to celebrate arrests. We're going to celebrate, right, stories where humanity is being celebrated through the police action, through these, through these high-quality interactions. Now you have a culture change. That's who you promote. That's who you appoint to leadership positions. That's who becomes chief, right? And so right now we have to shift from activity, right, and this kind of pseudo-results that we say, right? We take credit for crime when crime goes down. We say it's out of our hands when crime goes up, right? We, we have to be accountable, right, for these things. And, and we have to change what we think is effective. And so this is where the, the model in policing in this country has become so unwieldy because it is so different from state to state to state. Here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, they just now established a post board or a post entity. I mean, that's that happened in Minnesota back in the 70s. Right. So it's all over the map in Washington state. There's one police academy. Right. So at least you're getting some semblance of a consistent level of training. So I think there's things that should be done to the previous comments about structuring things. But at the end of the day, it's about what we believe is effective policing. And it just can't be this binary us and them. It has to be one that celebrates humanity and the outcomes are in. I love that idea of changing the culture itself, the very idea of what policing means, because that affects who enters, who leaves the institution and what actually happens. I do want to move to Miss Elsie in a moment, but very quickly, would you mind um, defining what a post entity is? It's not a term I'm familiar with. Yeah, so it's a police standards and training board entity. So it's, it's typically a legislated enacted board of some type that sets rudimentary standards of training for pre-service and in-service employees. In some cases, they have the ability to license, like in Minnesota, they issue a license and they can pull the license, um, but these are in very extreme situations. So that's that's what you see. Many states have post boards of some type. Um, the only thing consistent about them is the name. They have various levels of authority, um, but that's what it is in a nutshell. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so Ms. Elsie, talking of accountability and changing the culture of policing, you're part of an organization, We the Protesters, which has put forth um, this idea of campaign zero, where police officers and police departments need to start to change their culture, including things like ending broken window policing, which is policing the tiny little things that happen, the smaller crimes with the idea that that'll stop larger crimes, limiting the use of force and ending for-profit policing. And I must say, one of the things I really like about the campaign zero program is that you guys are willing to admit when something is wrong, um, that you're willing to put a little exclamation point that says research has shown that perhaps this isn't actually the most effective way to change police departments as you have with body cams. But I was wondering within that structure of Campaign Zero, if there are any specific elements of it which you have seen enacted that actually meant change police culture at its foundation. I know certainly ending for-profit policing is one that stood out to me as far as, you know, if you're not 
just trying to ticket as many people to make the money that your police your police department needs that you'll be adjusting what you're actually focusing on. But I was curious on your opinion. Um, so Campaign Zero is the organization name mm-hmm. and uh, the website you are talking about woo, is six years old um right now and so like a few of those things of the 10 buckets we've walked away from um I I appreciated that you guys were willing to admit that some of those steps were perhaps not the best ones um like I mentioned body cams there's a little note on that website now about how that's not quite as effective as it was originally thought to be and it's all subjective truly wherever it really depends on where you are who you are and what your encounter and what the counter you're having with the police officer is. Um, so we've seen in some places documentation is important. And we've seen in some cases that the, the documentation actually doesn't um, help or assist uh, the person get accountability for whatever they encountered with the police. Um, I actually would have to speak about a different campaign, if you don't mind, which is, um, I would say, from over the summer, related to Brianna Taylor, we launched endallknownox.org, um, which is a campaign aimed at ending or removing six problematic provisions from, or is it 15? It's six to 15 provisions from police union contracts that allow police to turn even just a regular everyday warrant into a no-knock warrant just by simply being able to say like, oh, I heard a flush of the toilet. They could have just flushed their whole um, drug ring down the toilet. Like, oh no, we have to break into the door. Um, We are working with a family in Louisville right now actually who had five of the same officers who killed Rihanna Taylor. Five of those officers broke into their home three three years before, two or three years before, um, held them and their family hostage at the wrong address with the wrong intel. So the same story as Brianna, only no one was actually killed. Um, Just their children were held at gunpoint and one of them was held at gunpoint in the backyard of their home. Um, So we try, we've tried with this campaign to one, actually bring about a tangible result or bring about tangible results um, related to Brianna, because that was important to me. I don't think um, we've had a big event around a black woman and police since maybe Sandra Bland or um, what happened to the woman in Texas who was playing video games when the police broke into her home and killed her. so it was just super important for me to be able to bring some sort of humanity like Michael is talking about to Brianna and her situation and not actually, you know, I'm not making a fundraiser of things. We're not trying to sell anyone anything. We simply wanted for the possibility of a no-knock raid to never happen again to another family. Um, and so we took off and we've been working with Dr. Pete Kraska, who is also from Kentucky, um, and he has been doing his work on no knock raids is actually older than me. Um, he's been doing this since 1982. And so it just seemed that he was waiting on, you know, some young wild people to come by and to, you know, take his work and run with it, basically. So we've been doing a lot of work with Pete, uh, the families themselves, either 
there in Kentucky or we've done some work in Missouri. We're doing work in Nevada. There's some stuff happening in Maryland where I live right now. Um, but yeah, that's one of the like super important campaigns that we're running right now. I wonder if you wouldn't mind repeating the name of the campaign just one more time. And all nonox.org. Uh, and I think you guys might have had some success in Kentucky. If I remember correctly, there was something passed in through the Kentucky legislature in the last couple of weeks about ending no knock. So that was a big victory. It was very cool to see that come across my phone screen. Thank you. Yeah, we've been getting some small wins here and there. And it is um, truly about the small wins. That's why I'm like, you know, I don't see national news and national headlines. Of course, I read them because it's related to work. But I really care about actually what's happening on the ground. I really appreciate that. Um, I was wondering if we could switch um, gears just a little bit and talk about qualified immunity, specifically about that form of accountability, because it has been included in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act about ending it. And there has been some talk about how the Supreme Court is shifting away from allowing everyone to use qualified immunity to avoid cases. Mr. Alakan, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind explaining immunity very briefly and then giving your perspective on whether or not you think it's effective. So um, qualified immunity is a doctrine that's used when a private citizen files a lawsuit under um, Section 1983 of the United States uh, uh, Code. Um, and what that is, is when they have been deprived of their constitutional rights, they are suing and seeking monetary damages from the entity, uh, let's say it's a police department and the individual actors in when suing a police department would be the officers to get compensatory and other and possibly punitive damages or damages that are sent as a signal to, to punish uh, the, the offenders. And so qualified immunity is a doctrine that exists actually for all public employees and officials, which says that a public official um, cannot be sued individually if that what they are accused of violating was not a clearly established constitutional right when they were making that decision or, or having that act. So it, it, that exists for every, every public employee. And I think the underlying basis for that is that we shouldn't punish um, the, uh, the employee who was exercising in good faith uh, discretion for something that wasn't previously declared uh, a violation of someone's constitutional rights. So what that has enabled is that there have been many cases in which uh, people who have been uh, who are alleging civil rights violations, uh, whether it's somebody who had been taken into custody, had, was a victim of excessive force or the estate of somebody who might have been killed, would bring a case. And then a qualified immunity finding is actually made by the judge, not a jury. And so there were many cases where the judges were granting qualified immunity, meaning that the officers who were involved would not be held liable for whatever the alleged act was. It's been very controversial because the courts pretty much throughout the country have very uh, strictly interpreted qualified immunity and what's considered to be a clearly established right, often saying that the exact fact pattern had to have happened before in a published decision. And if it didn't, then the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. So the debate right now is, is that protecting police officers from accountability um, and basically hiding behind qualified immunity. And so in the, in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, they actually eliminate qualified immunity only for police officers. 
So if somebody sues, that's not an option for them to try to seek being dismissed from the case under qualified immunity. Uh, just on the issue of civil litigation, I think uh, it is certainly subject to debate whether civil liability ultimately changes behavior or, or structurally changes behavior. Liability payments are very high, especially in large cities. Chicago, for example, in 2019, paid almost $50 million in liability settlements. And there's some, there's some good journalism on the differences in liability throughout the country. It certainly influences some things, but as a fundamental matter, I'm not sure it's going to address many of the issues that we're talking about. For, for a few reasons. Remember, a lawsuit could be filed today, but not the settlement, the trial, et cetera, won't happen for several years. So even if there is a loss that the city ends up paying or the individual officers, the underlying conduct was so long ago, it, it's, it's easy for them to sort of dismiss, well, that was back then. And the other reality, having been a trial lawyer and been involved with both the civil and the criminal justice system, is that it, not every lawsuit has merits. And there are a lot of other factors that come into play in terms of why a case is settled, why a case ended up where it was. You're not having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The, the level burden proof is much less than in a criminal case. And there are a lot of factors that go into whether you want to mitigate the risk of potentially having a jury with a much higher settlement, perhaps because you know, the officer has something in their history Perhaps the judge you got was really bad. And these factors come into play in decisions that are made in settling cases. So I, while I think there needs to be some reform in qualified immunity, I, I do get concerned when there is this idea that, well, if we just make the civil justice system easier for people to file lawsuits, that's fundamentally going to change these recurring issues. And I'm just not optimistic of that. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and I've taken constitutional law, but I know for a lot of people that explanation will help as far as legality and the issues there. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I just want to add one thing. There are a lot of people who think that qualified immunity will somehow make the cities change their policies and practices. And one thing is there's another, cities and municipalities are held liable under a completely different doctrine called Monell liability. And in that case, a city is only held liable for the constitutional violations of one of its officers is if they didn't have a policy or they were deliberately indifference to the practice. And that's very rare. So in many ways, the idea of holding the municipality liable for it is really under a totally different legal doctrine. And it's just an example where there are certain things that become sort of the center of the debate. And people think, well, if we just change this, it's going to change the way cities respond. And it's not really taking into the full context of how the system works. Um, aside from reforms that are like specifically designed to reduce the ability of police to get away with um, without being held accountable, I was wondering um, what each of you thought about changing the role of the police themselves. I have this question because I've done quite a bit of research in the last few months from a psychology perspective on the role of police acting as mental health counselors, um, especially when they don't have the training. Um, and I'm of the personal view that it's not really fair to ask a group of people to respond to situations which they have no knowledge about, no real training. Um, so I was wondering first, Mr. Davis, if you had a perspective on that, if changing the role of the police is vital to 
changing the environment the police work in and fixing relations in our country? Well, I think we have to prepare police for what they are going to be forced to encounter. Now, ideally, we would work to change the conditions to lessen the probability of those encounters, right? But in absence of that, right, there is a, um, you know, this is what I fundamentally call policing. It's the human behavior business. I mean, we can call it, you know, enforcement of laws. That's a tool. But at the end of the day, you're, you're dealing with human behavior. You're dealing with human beings and, and all of the intricacies and complexities of each individual human being. So ideally, right, because you just can't necessarily disassociate that. You know what I mean? Because if you say, you know, we're not going to have police respond to this type of call, they may need those that skill set to deal with a call that the police can avoid. Right. So I think this is a recasting. I mean, there's a couple of different things. One, I believe that much of society and other departments are off the hook. Right. In dealing with things substantively. And that has cost us. It's created this over-dependence on police and police have been happy to take on that level of responsibility for whatever reason. Right. And I think we got to be honest about the limitations of, of law enforcement officers. The first thing. So we got to build up the competencies in other areas of government and communities. Secondly, we have to recast what a competent police officer is, and we have to train to that. To the and, and and it just can't be the perfunctory introductory training. It has to be immersive training that has real outcomes that's going to show proficiency in dealing with these issues, right? Um, and then we have to have rigorous follow-up. It's like, it's it's almost like the medical profession, right? You know, it, the, the hospitals and and I would say elements of the medical profession that works well are the ones that really understand and do a retrospective performance analysis of how they, we don't do that uniformly in policing, right? We don't. Things, you know, did it go really bad? You know, that's the only test as opposed to looking on building on, on ways to take that 21 year old officer, that 25 year old officer and, and, and speed up that maturation and skill and skill process. Because I would say that, it, that the, the notion of policing is even to me beyond you know, the notion of, of a profession, it's really a craft. If you see it like a craft, like, you know, almost like playing an instrument, when are you done learning? You're never done. And I think we have to take that same approach with police. So it's recasting the role of supporting entities. It's recasting the notion of what it means to be a competent police officer and what skills they have to exhibit, right? And having training that actually gets them to exhibit those skills. And finally, it is aggressive follow-up on performance in the field. It's getting people better so they're not making the same mistakes over and over and incentivizing that improvement. I mean, because there are certain th- elements, there are certain events that happen in society that we need police to be competent and no one else is prepared to deal with some situations. And I think that's that's what I see is uh, part of the formula. And so do you think that would require an increase in the number of hours of training because you're adding new skills that they have to learn. It must take more time to learn those, right? Well, it's the hours and the type of training. I mean, you know, I mean, and it's, and it's also the performance management. It's, it's really, it's really a multi, it's a system, right? What is the experience of the person when they join the organization and, and how are they matured and how is their performance gauged and rewarded for the right incentives and how are people growing, growing into this role? These are all things that are just part of a comprehensive performance management system that includes training, but the training has to be robust and effective and measured. So we can say you're doing well and you're doing not so well. We have to go and get some some more training. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Mr. Alicanter, Ms. Elise, do you have a response to that? 
I, I have a thought, but Janetta, please go ahead. No, no, no. You can go ahead. I don't have anything. Oh. Um, I think so. So I, I agree with everything uh, Chief Davis is saying, but I also think that uh, regardless of whether you have co-responses or you're having mental health professionals going out and dealing with purely mental health calls, I still think it's incredibly important that police officers have training in dealing with mental health um, crises and people who are suffering from mental illness. Because, you know, Chief Davis mentioned, you know, it's a human behavior problem. I, I would add to that, it says policing is about a complex human behavior issue because the complexities of the human behavior that they're they're dealing with are much more complex than probably most of us have ever dealt with as non-police officers. I mean, there are people who have mental illness coupled with maybe drug abuse or substance abuse or went through a traumatic event. You know, knowing how to deal with that just on a, if they're a victim is hard enough. Now add to that element, uh, a weapon, a violent crime, being in the middle of a freeway or a street, those are very difficult circumstances to figure out how do I resolve this issue? So I think mental health training is essential for all police officers. But I'll go back to my, my initial comment, which is our expectation as a society or even as a police agency is, well, we'll just take somebody and we'll give them training and they will be able to do this. Now, like I said, you can train skills. You could train, this is how you do active listening. This is how you can understand. But when you're, wouldn't it be great if many, if before you became a police officer, you had to have a college education where an element of what you learned was actually about psychology um, before you even become a police officer or go into the academy? We're in a situation now where we have to do those methods of going in and doing training. And as Chief Davis said earlier, we have to deal with a culture, but that culture is dictated by the system that is in place and that we continue to perpetuate that I think will, you know, culture will eat strategy alive. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what we're dealing with. But I do think that many of the things that we are saying we want police to be out of will never be completely out of it because a person suffering a mental health crisis with a weapon is not going to be dealt with by uh, the mental health uh, department. It's going to be the police who are going to respond and they need to know how to deal with that. And even if you take away some aspect of it, there's always a chance that they're going to get a call from somebody who doesn't know that person's background, doesn't know they have illness or are struggling with drug addiction. So they're going to end up on the scene regardless. Um, Absolutely. And in fact, much more complicated. Many of the mental health calls that we hear about a lot, the officers don't know that the person's suffering from mental illness. The call comes in and says there's a battery suspect. Somebody had hit someone on the street corner. That's all they know. Then they arrive and they realize that the person's you know, experiencing homelessness or they have schizophrenia. That's not even known in many of the calls that officers will respond to, depending on the jurisdiction. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I think we'll probably shift into just our last question here. Um, so to wrap up, along with any concluding thoughts that you might have, I was wondering if each of you wouldn't mind touching on what other policy changes that we haven't really talked about would be helpful in improving policing and then also helping to build up some badly broken trust in communities that have been abused by police power, specifically the black and brown communities. Ms. Elsie, if you don't mind starting. Um, 
quickly off the top of my head, I don't have any policy proposals to throw at you, but I will say that everything that um, generally was proposed last summer by um, either folks who are about to run for election or running for re-election is being politely walked back um, <laughs> this spring and over the winter. So a lot of the things that we were working towards last summer, as far as bills and legislation have just up and disappeared because folks are either um, combining legislation with other things like related to like housing, which completely removed talking about policing completely. Um, so it's just been, it has been interesting trying to even keep the little policy stuff we got last summer still on the table. And I imagine that means that we need a level of accountability for politicians and also corporations and groups like that who have for city council members, aldermen. Yes, it's literally from when you say ground up. Like, if you can't hold the city council member accountable, how do we plan on holding a governor accountable or someone higher than that? You know. And it's certainly, I think that's a role for a lot of people who look like me, white people who have the time and the energy to. <laughs> like keep on people's backs and be like you said you were going to do that yeah. are you doing that because we have that kind of power to do it that's um, exactly right Anne. that's I mean that sounds like a good place to start um Mr Davis did you have a response to the question I believe in the fundamental autonomy that is required for police chiefs to make decisions about the future of the organization and and I think any large city police chief will sit here and talk about binding arbitration as an issue um, and, and I'm all for employee rights and, and you know, and, and effective leadership. I think that's part of why, uh, you know, in some areas of the country, there's, you know, heavily unionized, you know, uh, and, and contracts that, you know, weigh on the labor side. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, that whole dynamic tends to limit the ability uh, of police chiefs to make fundamental shifts and who's actually doing the work. And it's not just on the who's in the building, it's who's leading, right? Because supervisors will be a part of the unions as well and, and they'll have rights and, and get their, their their ability to supervise back as well if they, if they win an arbitration. So I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we gotta look at the elements of reform and, and, we, and if you uncouple and, and do some investigative work, you know, with police chiefs across the country that come in meaning well, uh, but but they come into a buzzsaw of service service rules and binding arbitration and, you know, and maybe, you know, city leaders that aren't on board with that level of, or that type of, um, you know, full, full, I would say, throttle change, um, you're going to, you're going to have an issue. And then also, you know, uh, the average stint of a major city police chief is well under five years. I mean, you know, if I, if I, if I'm a lifer in a large organization, I'm going to wait you out. You know, I can do five years, I can do two years, two and a half years. You know, the term for the, for the term for the Minneapolis police chief is three years. Really? You can't do anything in three years, right? So I, I think there's some structural things, you know, that, that we need to think about when it comes to, you know, are we creating the best environment for reform? For those who are historians of policing, you know, the first era of policing was a political era where things are just inherently corrupt. Well, if I'm beholden to a to an elected official, you know, a strong mayor from a government, and I'm gone in a minute, how far are we away from that, right? What kind of autonomy do I have to be able to do it? And what kind of message can I send that'll, that, that I know I can back up? And I think that's an important part of, of making change stick over time. Mm -hmm. 
And just very briefly, a follow-up question to that. Do you think that particularly strong police unions have caused some issues with creating that change as far as if the leadership in the union doesn't want change, that prevents leadership in general? Or it's, excuse me, creates change, prevents change in general. I apologize. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it where union and it is possible for, for union leadership and uh, police chiefs to work harmoniously. Now, it's inherently adversarial sometimes. Um, because they see any change as, you know, potential violation, you know, they see harm in that because it's unfamiliar. But let me just say this last point. A lot of times what we see in this kind of, you know, reluctance to move away from the dogma is simply, and this goes to the point about education, uh, organizations that are, that are not conditioned to produce new ideas. They're, they're, they just don't produce new ideas. They're at a loss, right, to deal with the situation because they've dealt with it the same way. They dealt with crime the same way, right? Everything is enforcement late. Take broken windows, for example, right? That came up, right? Who says it has to be an enforcement issue? Why can't it be, why can't you just fix it, right? And all of the small crimes that go, that, that we say are crimes that require enforcement, why is that the tool as opposed to us being an entity that draws strings together all of the other folks and entities that can actually make the condition change? It is the, it is the lack of toolbox, Right? or the lack of tools in the toolbox that has created this kind of endless cycle of mediocrity and doing the same thing over and over again. And that goes to leadership. And so at the end of the day, um, if you need to force innovation, sometimes you have to change out personnel. And, and I'm not about eradicating people's livelihoods, but I'm also about giving police chiefs the needed autonomy to be able to make the change that is actually going to be substantive. I mean, because there's there's there is a lot of talented police chiefs out there that simply cannot make moves and cannot do the things that they would like to do. And I think um, that is a part of the equation. Thank you so much. And Mr. Alakan, in the last few minutes here, your response? Sure. I've got three quick things that I think are important and, and maybe in some ways summarize the issues here. The first thing on accountability. Um, what Chief Davis is talking about is something that few people know, is that a chief of police in most major um, American cities uh, does not have the power to fire their officers. And even if they do, um, they're often reinstated by civilian civil service commissions um, into positions even after serious misconduct. Um, that's a huge problem. And a, a lot of, you know, the focus has been on unions and certainly unions have a role in this, but unions are very powerful, but they're only as powerful as um, we make them and especially the political leaders make them and the laws make them. Um, you know, unions do what unions are supposed to do. They advocate for their constituents and their constituents, the officers. And so they do everything they can to ask for and demand wages, hours and working conditions that are to their benefit and to protect their membership. But they're not, they don't get it just because they ask. Somebody gives it to them. And oftentimes it's the same political leaders who are demanding police chiefs and others to reform and to change things and hold people accountable, who on the other hand, have made this unholy alliance with the unions for their endorsements and money and give them those procedural rights that make it nearly impossible to hold an officer accountable for serious misconduct. So I do think that the accountability that was mentioned earlier really has to be directed at the law and all of the things that are done, and, and, and it's not just um, at the state level, it's the local city council members, the supervisors, whoever it may be. 
but they are making the rules that make it difficult to actually hold um, bad officers accountable. So I think that's important. The second thing is, is the issue of race. This is an opportunity, not just for the country, but for law enforcement to talk and confront the issue of race. And I know some departments are doing that, but more need to, and have honest, open discussions about this issue. It is difficult. It is challenging. It's not something you know people usually want to do at the dinner table. But until law enforcement fundamentally understands the history of race and racial discrimination, why there is this concern about structural racism, not just within policing, but within our society, I don't know how we're going to be able to overcome some of these issues and come together. And that's why people in the community, young people especially, making those contacts and police departments reaching out to have these discussions both internally and externally is so, so critical. And then the last thing is, you know, we've talked a lot about the humanity that's so important, recognizing the humanity of everyone, regardless if they're a criminal suspect or not, and also the humanity of the officers and the compassion that they have to have, and many, many do have, wanting to help people. I don't think people become police officers because they want to work late at night and, and work in shifts and be in danger all the time. They actually do fundamentally want to help people. And sometimes that's their disincentives to doing that because of the structure. But in order to be have that human-to-human contact, um, they need time. Officers need time. And in many departments, especially those that are losing officers, that time dwindles away just because they're responding to 911 calls. And policing is inherently negative. I don't know anytime any of you, I know for me, if I ever got stopped by a police officer, I didn't see it as a positive thing. And and I've never had, I've never been searched. I've never been arrested. I've never been mistreated. We need to give opportunities to officers to have positive contacts with members of the community. That's why these other community programs are so important, so they can have that positive contact that's mutually understanding. But to do that takes time, it takes money, and it takes effort and leadership. And I worry that because of budget cuts and other things, we're taking that essential element of community policing away, and we're ending up, we're going to end up not producing that human contact that is so important for the community to trust the police and for the police not to have an insular view of the community it's supposed to serve. Yeah, and I'll just say one thing I know we're trying to, um, that is such a salient point um, because what we talk about is filling your soul, right? What does it mean at the end of your career or your stint as a police officer to look back on it and say, I didn't just you know, deal with the worst humanity has to offer. I actually filled my soul with interactions that were meaningful and, and my work actually made a difference, right? So, you know, another thing that's I talked about is the suicide rate amongst officers, right? Now it's, you know, two and a half times that of a general population. And that's in part because of the pernicious environment, the culture within organizations that just squeeze the humanity out of everyone, including the cops. And so this notion of, again, creating time for those contacts, making that be celebrated and having that now inculcated into what is celebrated in the, in, in the, the everyday work is so mission critical because at the end of the day, you want good people who mean well, who are talented to stay the course and become leaders and mentor other people with the same disposition and mentality. I mean, that's what you want. And so the mental health and well-being, everything we talked about today, will do that. Right. If you have an enforcement laden, dehumanizing you know, culture that diminishes the well-being of the officer. 
right? And even, I'll just say this, even some of the rights that the unions fight for, the ability to pick your shifts, you shouldn't be on the overnight shift in a large city in a busy district for 10 years, mm-hmm. right? You need to see the light of day. You need to see people when they're not behaving in one setting. But that right is, is doing more harm than good. So listen, it's all about complex systems here. But there are several things, if you have the right, I would say, philosophical bearing on what it means to create a healthy environment for everyone and the conditions for officers to do their best work, that is, the, to me, the means and fulcrum for uh, change. Thank you for that point. I think it's incredibly important to remember as we have these conversations that we're not just having them against the police, that we're having them for the police as well, that there are things that we can change within the police departments that will both benefit the community and the officers themselves. And I think that's something that gets forgotten quite often in these discussions. But that's all the time we have for this episode of Next Gen Talks, The Future of Policing. Thank you again so much to my guests today for their incredibly intelligent and conversational comments. And I hope you all have learned as much as I have about police reform and what needs to change in our society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.